got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to episode 175 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got another random clippings episode for you. This is the seventh time I've done an episode like this, and believe me when I tell you that I have a lot of random clippings that have built up in my file folder. It's definitely time to start going through them. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that the random clippings episodes don't follow the pattern of my usual episodes, or even a mini-episode. There's not one single important day. Instead, I tell you the weird, shocking, surprising, and funny stories that I came across while working on other episodes. Sometimes the stories are little tidbits from a famous day in history, and sometimes they're completely random tidbits from history. So, let's get started. I chose this first random clipping because I have three teenage boys, and I could totally see them doing something like this. This clipping comes from the Buffalo News out of New York on June 11, 1943. The headline says, Three boys just point and crowd blocks traffic. And that pretty much sums up the article. Even though the article was printed in New York, it actually took place in Philadelphia. For whatever reason, and I'm going to guess it was boredom, three teenage boys decided to go outside and point at a car parked on the side of the road. That's it. They would just point at it and whisper to each other, And their actions drew so much attention from people driving by that the police in town were starting to get really annoyed. Four different times throughout the day, traffic completely stopped and got backed up because people were trying to figure out what the boys were pointing at. And crowds would gather until the police made them start moving along again. As happens, rumors started circulating about the car and word started to go around that it was full of snakes even though there wasn't a snake in sight. I guess people were desperate for a little excitement back in the 1940s. Okay, for this second random clipping, I'm going to stay in the city of Philadelphia, but I'm going to go even further back in history. This clipping comes from the Standard Union out of Brooklyn, New York, on November 11, 1921. The headline says, Alleged love trail goes around the world. A man named William Zinser in Philadelphia claimed that a woman named Beatrice Odette wouldn't leave him alone. I think this is the craziest stalking story I've ever heard. William said that he had taken a group on a tour of the Orient. They'd gone to places like Tokyo and Hong Kong and India. Beatrice Odette was on that tour and she became obsessed with William. I have no idea how old William was, but Beatrice was 30 years old, and she worked as a stenographer. After the tour ended, Beatrice continued to follow William around. She literally followed him around the world, and no matter what William did, he could not get her away from him. Finally, in Philadelphia, he decided to report her to the police. They came and detained the love-struck woman with the intent to deport her back to her hometown of Montreal, Canada. That's pretty intense. But it turns out 
it wasn't the first time Beatrice was being deported. It was the third time she was being deported for stalking poor William Zinser. This next random clipping comes from the Trenton Evening Times out of Trenton, New Jersey. It's dated August 14, 1914, and the headline says, Unconscious in Runaway, Driver Bravely Saved. This story out of New Jersey sounds like something you'd see in a movie, and not in real life. Edward Haney, who was a clerk in a cigar store, was standing at the trolley station waiting for the trolley to come. At this point in time, the trolleys could have been horse-drawn or something else, but it's hard to tell from the description. Anyway, as Edward stood there, he saw a runaway small carriage flying down the road. And according to the article, the driver of the carriage had, quote, been stricken with a fit, and he was unconscious. Edward could see the man's head bobbing up and down within inches of the carriage's wheel as the poor man's horse ran away with him. Behind the carriage was a trolley car, trying to chase down the carriage to help stop it. Except the trolley only seemed to be scaring the horse even more, and it ran even faster. In an extremely daring move, Edward jumped out from his spot by the trolley stop and grabbed for the loose reins. He managed to grab them, but the horse was moving fast, and he couldn't stop it. The horse started to drag Edward down the street, along with the unconscious man still inside the carriage but Edward refused to let go, and he kept pulling until the horse finally came to a stop. The man was taken to a hospital, where I assume he survived, since it didn't say otherwise, and Edward Haney was given a lot of praise for his bravery. This next random clipping is going to absolutely shock you. It comes from the San Angelo Weekly Standard out of San Angelo, Texas and it was printed on August 15, 1969. The story took place in Peterborough, England. A couple in their 20s had just moved into a trailer park. The wife was Shirley Thorne, and the husband was Arthur Thorne, and the couple had two daughters, two-year-old Jacqueline and five-month-old Tracy. Shirley was pregnant with another child, now, I know Arthur was a garbage collector, but I don't know if Shirley worked or not. Anyway, as they were moving into their new home, the Thorns met their neighbors, 24-year-old Jeffrey Butler and his 23-year-old wife, Patricia. The two couples got to talking, and Shirley commented on how much work her children were, especially 2-year-old Jacqueline. Shirley said she was getting to be a real handful, and it was starting to get on Shirley's nerves. Well, Patricia came up with a great solution to the problem. She offered to trade a used phonograph player worth about $100 for Jacqueline. Yes, you heard that right. <laughs> now, most people would be shocked and horrified by such a suggestion. But Shirley, and I assume Arthur, was on board. And they decided it sounded like a great idea. So Shirley said, sure, let's do it and they traded. The Thorns got a used record player, and the Butlers got a child. And this wasn't just a casual deal. When the Thorns turned Jacqueline over to the Butlers, they handed over her birth certificate too, along with a signed paper telling them that the deal was official. 
Even the butlers were shocked that the thorns had gone along with it. So you might be wondering if the thorns got a lot of good use out of their newly acquired record player. Nope. The very next day, Shirley sold the $100 record player for just $7.25 so she could buy milk for her other daughter. When questioned about it all later, Shirley said she was worried that she wouldn't be able to cope when her third baby arrived. And since the butlers didn't have any kids, she figured Jacqueline would bring happiness to them. Well, fast forward just three months and Shirley is having buyer's remorse. Imagine that. She decided she missed Jacqueline and maybe she'd made a bad choice. She announced that she was going to buy a brand new record player and offer it to the butlers in exchange for Jacqueline. When the butlers were questioned, they said Jacqueline had already started calling them mummy and daddy. She was very happy, and they were going to fight it in court if they had to, to make the adoption official. And that's where the article ends. <laughs> Who ended up with Jacqueline? Don't worry, I searched for an answer, and I found one. When welfare authorities found out about the whole thing, they ordered the butlers to return Jacqueline to her biological parents, and the family was soon reunited. I hope for Jacqueline and her siblings' sakes, the welfare authorities kept an extra eye on their unique situation. The next random clipping comes from the St. Joseph News Press out of St. Joseph, Missouri. It's dated September 12, 1917, and it takes place in Chicago. Now, when I think of 1917 Chicago, I think of it being on the verge of a major crime area. Prohibition was just a few years away, and so was organized crime. But in 1917, while the country and the world were fighting the Great War, Chicago decided they were going to crack down on something that they thought was a serious crime. They even announced that there were 5,000 people who had committed this crime, and they were in the process of issuing warrants for all of them. Each person would be arrested and fined. So, what was the great crime wave going on in Chicago? Well, all of the 5,000 people were barbers, and they cut hair for a living. And they had failed to pay the $1 fee to get a state license to cut hair. If they were caught cutting hair without a license and were arrested, they would then have to pay a $10 fine. I'm not really sure why so many were refusing to pay the $1 fee, and I'm guessing there was more to it than the little blurb made it seem. But 1917 wasn't a great time to cut hair in Chicago. This next random clipping is extremely short. It comes from the Press Democrat out of Santa Rosa, California, and it's dated October 18, 1931. Frank Gephardt, no age given, was working at a bakery there in Santa Rosa when something crazy happened. He slipped and fell into one of the giant bread mixers at the bakery. I can only assume that the mixer was on because poor Frank was knocked unconscious and had lacerations to his skull. He was pulled out of the bread dough and rushed to the hospital, where he was treated and eventually released. He was expected to physically recover from his ordeal, although I can imagine that mentally it might take a little more time, and depending on his friends, it might have been something he got teased about for many years. 
This next clipping comes from the Abilene Weekly Reflector out of Abilene, Kansas, and it's dated July 9, 1903. The headline says, Shocked to Death. Now, with a headline like that, you can probably guess where this little article is going. But this shocking tale involves more than just one person. A few days earlier, on the 4th of July, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, tragedy occurred. There was a huge rainstorm that night, and water poured from the sky. A grocery store had a large American flag displayed on a pole in front of the store. And, well, without much rain and wind, the flag quickly became soaked. And when the wind blew the heavy, water-soaked flag against an electric wire, the weight of that heavy, waterlogged flag caused the electrical wire to snap. It fell to the ground and landed in a huge puddle of water. Not a good situation. Well, a man soon came along, and he was running across the street in an attempt to get out of the rainstorm. He stepped on the edge of the puddle and was instantly killed by 2,000 volts of electricity. Right after that, the Staddy family, a family of seven, was riding along in their surrey, trying to hurry to get to their destination and get out of the rain, or perhaps they were heading to or from an Independence Day celebration, when they came along the puddle and the downed wire. Now, the article says that hundreds of people were yelling for the surrey to stop, but somehow that seems like an exaggerated number. I mean, why would hundreds of people be standing around outside in a rainstorm? Anyway, they didn't realize people were trying to get them to stop, and they kept going. As soon as their horse stepped into the puddle, it was shocked and immediately collapsed and fell to the ground. When the family realized what was happening, they tried to jump out of the surrey. Four of them jumped out on one side and were fine. Three of them jumped out of the other side and right into the charged puddle of water. They were killed instantly. I did a little more research into this, and I was able to find out that Francesca Filomena Stadi and her son Giuseppe Stadi were two of the family members killed, along with a nephew, Salvatore Renda. It's very tragic that four people and a horse were killed because of a rogue American flag on Independence Day. This next clipping comes from the Hugo Daily News out of Hugo, Oklahoma. It's dated October 22, 1962, and it takes place there in Oklahoma. This is another very short clipping. In fact, the headline is almost as long as the blurb itself, but it's a pretty fun story. The headline says, Hugo Woman's Ring Turns Up After 24 Years. Yes, a woman named Mrs. C.D. Neese was out gardening in 1938, gathering some beans when her wedding ring fell off. I can imagine that she looked and looked and looked for the ring, but depending on how big her bean patch was, it could have felt like an impossible task. She couldn't find it, and pretty soon the years started to tick by. She didn't think about it much, but I'm sure when she was out in her garden, it probably came to her mind. But I doubt she ever expected to find it. And then, 24 years later, in 1962, she was in her garden with a friend and bent to cut some greens. 
There, sticking up out of the ground, as shiny as ever, was Mrs. Niece's wedding ring. Yes, she shouted and cheered. This next random clipping is actually a two-parter. I'm taking the first headline from the Clinton New Era out of Clinton, Ontario, Canada. It's dated September 29, 1881. The headline says, Can it be true? Apparently, a few days earlier, a group was out taking a pleasure cruise on the Niagara River. The barge they were on had taken them down the river to a spot called Sour Springs Grove. They spent the day there hanging out, partying, going for walks, and yes, drinking. Then they climbed back on the barge to head back down the river. Two of the people on the excursion were a man and a woman who were engaged to be married. And while they were at Sour Springs, the man started drinking quite a bit. So the woman decided to go for a walk with another man while her fiancé was drunk. Well, when they got back on the boat, the fiancé wasn't happy that his girlfriend had gone for a walk with another man, and the couple started to argue. He was very jealous, and he accused her of behaving improperly. She insisted she had behaved perfectly fine. The couple parted ways for a bit, and went their separate ways to cool off. Except the man just couldn't let it go. And right after the boat passed the International Bridge, while holding close to the Canadian shoreline, he went and found his fiancée again, and made the same accusations. Again, she denied his claims that she was being improper. Then, things took a shocking turn when the man pulled out a revolver and shot his fiancée in the head. She fell at his feet, dying instantly. Well, the other man on the boat quickly surrounded the gunman and took the gun from him before he could hurt himself or anyone else on the boat. And then they bound his hands and his feet so he couldn't move. When the ship reached its destination, the man was taken into police custody, and that's the end of the story in the article. It's a very sad story. Multiple newspapers printed the same article in their papers in the days after the tragic accident, and readers everywhere were shocked. But I wanted to know more. What happened to the jealous fiancé? And I found an answer. Nothing happened to him. You see, I found an article printed just days after the first printing of the article that said police were reporting that it was all a hoax. Nobody had been shot, and nobody was in custody. The incident never happened. They didn't know why someone would make up a story like that and then print it in a newspaper where it was quickly shared from one paper to another. But there was no jealous fiancé, and there was no dead girl. This next clipping comes from the Los Angeles Evening Express out of California. It's dated January 8th, 1929, and the headline says, Hermit Doctor Dies at 84, Never Charged Patients for Service. In a small town known as Juniper, up in the mountains of Colorado, there lived a man named Dr. Brazilla Adolphus Arbogast. He had attended medical school in Ohio and graduated from there in 1883. Then he went on to further his studies in places like Paris and Berlin. 
and finally he ended up in Juniper, Colorado. Dr. Arbogast wasn't your typical doctor. He loved helping his patients up in the mountains and would serve the cowboys and homesteaders there. In fact, when he died in 1929, he'd been serving patients in the area for 25 years. He would saddle up his horse with supplies and take off to help whenever he was called. And by called, I mean when someone came to his door to get him. You see, Dr. Arbogast lived in a small cabin in the hills, and he never bothered to have a telephone installed there. Now, there were quite a few small-town doctors back then who would travel to their patients. But Dr. Arbogast was different, because he didn't charge for his services. Ever. The only way he survived was by those he helped donating things to him, like food and other supplies, but he never required it of them. He did this for a quarter of a century. Then, in 1929, Dr. Arbogast came down with the flu. And although he'd saved the lives of many others throughout the years, he couldn't save himself. To honor him, the town planned to take a snowplow and plow a path seven miles long so Dr. Arbogast's coffin could be taken back to his cabin in the hills to be buried. Dr. Arbogast must have been a pretty great guy, because notice of his death was printed in newspapers all the way from New York City to Los Angeles. Okay, for my last random clipping of the day, I'm taking a clipping from the public ledger out of Maysville, Kentucky. This article was printed on November 11, 1921, and the headline says, Will we all make our own gold in 10 years? My family and I recently rewatched the Back to the Future movie series, and it was kind of funny to see the things they got wrong when predicting the future back in the 1980s, of what our futures would look like in the year 2015. I don't know about you, but I sure don't have a flying car. The same can be said for the 1960s movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Anyway, back in 1921, Scientists were starting to make some pretty big discoveries and advancements when it came to the atom. And that had some people very worried. No, it wasn't because of the potential for atom bombs, but rather something entirely different. Scientists were predicting that within 10 years, they would have learned the structure of the atom and they would be able to reproduce any element known to man. It was predicted that they would soon be able to produce things like lead and rubber and coal and tin and granite and, most importantly, gold. This prediction terrified the wealthy people of the world, whose fortunes were based on gold rather than things like real estate. Mass-producing gold in a laboratory would devalue it, and the wealthy would lose their status. But... As you probably know, there aren't laboratories mass-producing gold, and that prediction didn't come true. However, 10 years did bring the collapse of the stock market, the failing of banks, and the Great Depression. So in a way, some of the wealthy did lose their fortunes. Friends, thanks for joining me for these fun random clippings today. I've got many, many, many more clippings sitting in my files, so I'm sure I'll have another random clippings episode before too long. 
Don't forget to reach out to me with comments and requests at additionalhistory at gmail.com or check out our Facebook group. And as always, join me this coming Monday for a new full-size episode about a deadly event that was a shocker for its time. Talk to you later.